Section 8 of The Romance of Polar Exploration. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pat Navarre. The Romance of Polar Exploration by G. Firth Scott. Section 8. July passed and August arrived, but there were no signs of the approach of any relief steamer, and on August ninth, with the boats loaded and the records of the work done and as much food could be stored in them, the party bade farewell to Fort Conger and started on their memorable journey. The lateness of the season made navigation extremely difficult for such a small craft, and they were frequently impeded by ice which would have offered no obstacle to a big steamer. They had scarcely got out of sight of the house where they had passed the two long dark winters before they were so beset with loose ice that progress was almost impossible. Then new ice formed round them and they were hard and fast. The fact that they only carried a limited supply of fuel made their position more serious, and when, on August 18th, a temporary breaking in the flows enabled them to move forward, there was a general rejoicing but it was soon checked on discovering that they were forced inside of a huge mass of ice over fifty feet high and extending right up to the solid flow. It was impossible to turn back and fight through the drifting ice behind them, and the only hope of escape seemed to be steam on in case there might be a channel through the flow ahead. As they passed along the great wall of ice, they were amazed at seeing a crevice run into it. Arriving opposite to it, they found that it was a cleavage which went right through the mass, and they turned into it. The enormous berg had grounded and split asunder, leaving a passage a hundred yards long and barely twelve feet wide, the sides of which were sheer fifty feet high on either hand. Such a formation was unique, even in the Arctic regions, and the steaming through it was an adventure without a parallel. It led them into a fairly open water, and they were able to push on into Rawlings Bay before they were again beset. This time it was not the new ice, but the closing in of the flows that caught them. So quickly did the masses close in that the boats were caught and nipped before anything could be done to save them. The men at once scrambled out onto the ice, striving to lift the lighter boats onto the flow and unloading the provisions from the others as fast as they could, lest the crack should open again and everything be lost. The nip, however, had not been so severe as to endanger the floating capacity of the boats, but the ice had closed too firmly to allow of any hopes of their being able to force their way through. A strong wind from the north, in spite of the snow and cold it would have brought, would have been welcome, but the days were provokingly calm and the ice only moved south at its ordinary slow rate. By August 26th they had traveled 300 miles from Fort Conger and were within 50 miles of Cape Sabine, a headland where there was a large supply of stores left by Sir George Norris in 1876. If they were able to reach there before the winter night set in, there was some chance of their existing through the dreary period, which, it was now evident, they were doomed to pass in that locality and yet the spirits of the party were as bright as though a steamer were within sight of them. One of them, in his diary, wrote, Adversary in any form would fail, I think, to dampen the spirits of the men. Our situation is desperate. 
Any moment the ice may crumble beneath our feet and the sea swallow up the entire party. Still, while exercising on the ice this evening, the men danced and sang as merrily as they would have in their own homes. They are irrepressible in the face of all this uncertainty and perhaps starvation. The end of the month found them still beset and with barely fifty days' rations. The opinion was now divided as to the best course to adopt, whether to remain in the boats and wait on the off chance of their drifting near Cape Sabine, or to take to the sledges and push on over the rough ice to the shore. They had been drifting for thirty miles, and only twenty now lay between them and the Cape with its store of provisions. The leader was averse to leaving the boats at once, and the days dragged on until, on September 10th, it was evident that the sledge journey would have to be undertaken if the shore was to be reached and a camp formed before the darkness set in. Unfortunately, when they did abandon the boats, the weather changed, and a cold wind with driving snow came to make their struggle still more difficult. They tried at first to drag two of the boats with them, but one soon had to be abandoned and the party struggled on. Their sleeping bags froze and filled with drifting snow, so that they were able to obtain but little rest when they halted, and when they were moving they were always cold and miserable. Until September 28th they were struggling over the rough, difficult ice, and then their trials were further increased. They were nearing the shore, and the force of the tide, backed up by the pressure of the ice grinding along before the wind, caused the flow to crack and break up. Only by the most persistent energy and exertion were they able to get their stores and themselves on shore, though still some distance from Cape Sabine. They had now traveled 500 miles since they left Fort Conger, and not only were the men considerably exhausted by their recent struggle, but winter was setting in very rapidly with constant and heavy storms. It was therefore decided to form a camp where they were, while the snow had not frozen too hard for them to get some stones for a shelter. They had been compelled, on their journey over the ice, to abandon everything in the way of covering save their sleeping bags, and unless they built a hut of some description, the rigor of the winter would inevitably be fatal to all. Such stones as could be found were collected and built into a low wall forming a square of about sixteen feet. The stones were difficult to obtain, and the wall could only be made three feet high. An opening was left in one of the sides of the square and a passageway constructed, so that the entrance to the interior did not open directly onto the frozen exterior. Across the top of the walls, the boat they had dragged with them over the ice was laid keel uppermost, the oars being laid under it so as to maintain it in position, the open spaces between the sides of the boat and walls being covered with such canvas as they had. Around the stone walls and over the top, snow was piled, and their living house was complete. It sheltered them from the wind and from the extreme bitterness of the cold, but beyond that, nothing could be claimed for it. Everyone had to enter it on hands and knees, and once inside, no one could stand up, while the taller men of the party were only able to sit up in the middle of the hut where the boat made the roof slightly higher. The men arranged their sleeping bags against the wall with the feet towards the middle of the floor, and when they had crept in through the narrow entrance, they groped their way into the bags. Then, half lying and half sitting, with their shoulders against the stone behind them, they made themselves as comfortable as they could during the long period of darkness. They divided themselves into messes for the purpose of feeding, 
and two cooks prepared the food, an operation that was always difficult and unpleasant. It had, of necessity, to be carried on inside the hut, and when the two men were kneeling in a cramped-up position over the makeshift for a stove in the middle of the floor, there was no room for anyone else to stretch his legs. Everyone had to huddle up as closely as possible, and as all the smoke from the stove had to find its way out of the hut the best it could, the atmosphere during cooking time was far from refreshing. The heat from the stove also thawed the ground immediately under it, and the snow on the canvas over it, with the result that the cooking of every meal met a thorough wetting as well as choking for the cooks. As soon as the hut was finished, a small party pushed on towards Cape Sabine in order to locate the provisions stored there. On October 9th, they returned with the news that dispatches had been found, stating the Proteus had foundered in the ice on July 24th, just off the Cape, and that the crew and relief party had started to the south so as to meet the second relief steamer Yantic, or a Swedish steamer which was known to be in the locality, and send on help to the Greeley expedition. The little party also discovered some provisions in the whaleboat, previously abandoned on the ice, which had drifted ashore near the Cape. This was subsequently used as firewood when all other fuel was exhausted. The news of the disaster to the Proteus was a serious blow to the expedition, as it meant that no help would be able to reach them until the following spring at the earliest, and in the meantime, they would be compelled to exist as best they could upon their meager stock of provisions. The relief party who had visited the Cape on their way from the wreck of the Proteus had very considerably reduced the stores which the Greeley party counted on finding, and when they obtained the remnants which were left, part of the bread was found to be a mass of green slimy mildew. The men had now been on reduced rations for many days, and so hungry were the members of the band sent to convey the stores from Cape Sabine to the hut, that when the green moldy stuff was thrown out by the officer in charge, the men flung themselves onto it and devoured it despite all he could do to persuade them from such a course. The question of the strictest economy in the management of food supplies was now a matter of life or death, and very seriously the leaders debated it. On October 26th, the sun sank beneath the horizon, and in the ensuing darkness, which lasted for 110 days, there would be no chance of obtaining any game. A few blue foxes had been killed since the camp was formed, and half the number were set aside for subsequent consumption, those consumed at once being devoured to the bones, every part being put into the stew. Meager as the rations were, it was necessary to reduce them still further if the food was to last until the spring. By a further reduction, it was calculated that the party could exist until March 1st, when the available supplies would amount to ten days' rations but no relief could possibly reach them until a couple of months later than that, and how were they to live after March 10th, when the last crumb of their supplies had been consumed? There was only one course for them, and that was explained by the leader. On November 1st, the allowance for each man would be 14 ounces, given out every 24 hours, and on March 1st, as soon as there was light, they would take the remaining 10 days' supply and set out across the frozen straits in the forlorn hope of reaching an outlying camp of Ita Eskimo on the Greenland coast. The terrible prospect of such a scheme to men situated as they were can scarcely be imagined. 
For over a month they had already been slowly starving on an amount of food for daily consumption which an ordinary man could comfortably eat at one meal. And now that amount was to be decreased to less than a pound of food a day, and in a climate where the cold was so intense that water could not be kept from freezing inside the hut excepting it was over the stove. For four months they would have to face that rigid diet, suffering the pangs of starvation constantly, almost entirely in the dark, and always huddled up in the sleeping bags against the wall of their low-roofed hut. Yet they accepted the scheme without a murmur. Seldom have men shown themselves so absolutely courageous, for at the best it was merely slow starvation so as to be able to make an almost hopeless dash for freedom and food in four months' time. The suffering during those four months was terrible. Men, as soon as they got a hold of their daily rations, were tempted to devour them at once. And so still for a time the ceaseless gnawing of their hunger. But to do so meant that in an hour's time the pain would be back again with no means of staying it until twenty-three hours had passed. Calmly and bravely they faced the ordeal, dividing their scanty store into regular meals and when by an accident one of them upset his can spilling his few mouthfuls of tea on the ground the others contributed their share so that he could not go entirely without nothing could exceed the touching fidelity which characterized their bearings one to the other during this period of unexampled suffering at cape isabella a stock of a hundred and forty pounds of meat was known to have been left by sir george norris and a party of four set out in the hopes of securing it for a week before they started they were allowed an extra ration in order to strengthen them for the trial of a journey in the dark over rough ice and with the temperatures at thirty-four degrees below zero the extra ration consisted of two ounces a day for five days they battled their way through the darkness against a heavy wind laden with snow and at last found the place where the food was piling it on their sledge they turned back home again and for fourteen hours labored with it only consuming a little warm tea during that time, for they had no means of heating more. One of the four was badly bitten by the frost and was soon so stricken that he could not even stagger along. A piercing wind was blowing, and to save their comrade's life, the others abandoned the sledge and tried to support him. Soon, two of them became exhausted, and the remaining one, Sergeant Rice, pushed on alone to the camp in order to bring help. For sixteen hours he was fighting his way over the twenty-five miles that lay between him and the hut. When he arrived there his lips were too frozen for him to be able to speak at once. Weary and weak as the whole party was, eight of the strongest at once started off in rescue. When they picked the other three up, they found them lying under the sleeping bag with the sick man between them, and the bag frozen so hard over them that it had to be cut open before they could be got out. Then they resumed their way to the camp, which they reached after forty-four hours' absence, in which time they had covered forty miles. The frostbitten man, Ellison, was almost dead, his face, feet, and hands being absolutely frozen. But so determined were they all to survive as long as possible that he was tended with all the care they could command. He was kept alive in spite of his sufferings, which, during the first week after his rescue, were so severe that he daily called on his comrades to end his misery. Meanwhile, the memory of the abandoned sledge laden with meat was constantly in the minds of the starving men, 
whose hunger was now so great that in the darkness after the lamp was put out economy compelled them to use it only for cooking men crept to the stove and devoured any rancid fat left in the lamp but still discipline held them together and they made no mention of their sufferings to one another the success of the journey across the ice on march first was what they looked forward to and with the arrival of that date they believed their sufferings would be over on january eighteenth the first one of the party to die passed away really of starvation although the men to keep the ugly word away from their minds accepted the doctor's statement that it was of an effusion of water at the heart that the man had died his end made a deep impression on the gallant little band all the same and by the beginning of february several more men were in a critical condition including lieutenant lockwood who refused to accept an extra ration of two ounces a day from the diminished stores sergeant rice accompanied by the eskimo gens made a plucky effort to reach littleton island where an outlying camp of eskimo might be found but gens could not survive the journey and five days after starting they returned everyone was now impressed with the necessity of husbanding their energies for the great effort to be made on the first day of march and as february slowly passed away the emaciated creatures grew enthusiastic as they sought to cheer one another up by detailing the tremendous feasts they would have when they returned to civilization at length the first of march dawned and the brave hearts which had kept up so long against starvation and despair shrank before the terrible blow they received the ice had broken and open water rolled where they had planned to cross on the ice nothing was said for the courage of the men was only equalled by their consideration for one another but the effect of the great disappointment sank deep into the minds of many the food remaining was eked out through the month with the aid of some blue foxes and a ptarmigan which were eaten to the bones and april found them with only a few days even of the starvation rations remaining several of the men were so weak that they could barely turn over in their sleeping bags the eskimo frederick was found dead in his bag and another of the little party followed the next day then sergeants rice and fredericks insisted on making an effort to reach the meat abandoned when ellison was frostbitten it is difficult to understand why the effort had not been made before but many errors of judgment are conspicuous after a campaign which are not so apparent in the moment of struggle now that it was made it failed through the cold freezing wind penetrating the starved bodies of the two men rice who throughout the terrible ordeal of their captivity had never spared himself was the first to feel it a strong wind was blowing bringing down heavy snow squalls suddenly rice began to talk wildly and then staggered fredericks grasped him by the arm and tried to keep him up but the cold and starvation had too tight a hold upon their victim he vainly endeavored to pull himself together but only for a moment then he sank down on the snow babbling about the feast he was going to enjoy his comrade tried to restore him by giving him some of the stimulants they had with them and did not hesitate to strip off his own fur coat to lay upon the other sitting the while holding his hands and exposed to all the biting fury of the arctic wind in his shirt sleeves but everything was useless rice was too worn out and too weak to fight further and died as he faintly talked of the food he fancied he was eating the shock to fredericks was almost overwhelming for he was miles away from camp chilled to the bone and with only a little coffee and spirits of ammonia to revive his own drooping vitality 
Yet he would not leave his dead comrade until he had reverently laid him in a shallow resting place in the snow, though it almost cost him his life to pay this last tribute. When he at last managed to reach the camp with his sad tidings, he was almost gone, and the news he brought plunged everyone into the lowest depths of sorrow. For Rice had always been one of the bravest and best of the party. Those who were able to do so attended to Fredericks and revived him. To those who were weakest, the end of Rice was a fatal blow, and the next day or so saw three or four pass away, one of whom was the intrepid Lockwood. A very few more days and all would have been gone but for a gleam of good fortune. A young bear was killed, and the four hundred pounds of meat obtained from it was the salvation of the survivors. Several seals were seen in the straits and a few walrus, and all who could still handle a gun were daily striving to obtain fresh supplies for the larder. Eskimo gens, who hunted assiduously, succeeded in killing a small seal. But in a chase after another, his kayak was injured in the ice, and he was drowned. After his death, only misfortune attended the hunting, and failing to replenish their stock of game, they were reduced to such a terrible plight that they had only the thick skin of the seal on which to subsist. Even this fare was carefully divided and measured out, so that life might be maintained as long as possible in case a relief vessel came. One day it was found that somebody was stealing. All the party was assembled, but no one would admit the theft. It was decided that the thief should be shot if discovered. One man, being suspected, was watched. He was caught and executed. A fortnight later, the last few square inches of the seal skin was gone, and the men, now little more than living skeletons, lay in their sleeping bags looking at one another with hollow eyes, wondering, perhaps, who would be the last to go. When a steamer's whistle sounded over the straits, at first, they dared not trust their ears. It must have been a gull crying, or, or a bear, they said, and the only man with strength enough to crawl crept out to sea. The others lay where they were, straining their ears to catch again the sound which had so moved them. But the minutes passed on in silence. The man who had gone out did not come back, and their hopes fell. No one spoke for it was too plain they had been deceived, and a profound silence reigned. Then they heard a great shouting, and before their minds could understand how it was done, they were surrounded by men of their own race, who were administering restoratives as quickly as they dared. The Thetis, commanded by Captain Schley of the United States Navy, had reached them, and so, on June 23, 1884, the survivors of the Greeley expedition were saved. End section 8